Good morning. Our first pew, um, our first Bible verse will be from Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 to 12. And this can be found on page 1490 in your pew Bibles. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are, you rob- how are, you- how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will, be called, will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Our second Bible verse is from Matthew, chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. And this can be found in page 1,541 in your pew Bibles. This is the parable of the bags of gold. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to yet another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five more bags. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you have entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I know, I know, or I knew that you are a hard man harvesting where you have not sown, and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid, and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvested where I have not sown, and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers, so that when I returned... I would have at least received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. 
for whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here ends the word of the Lord. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Okay. All right. Thank you. Well, friends, let us pray together. God, speak to us this morning. Give us a word from you. Living our faith out in these days can be so challenging. And so we come together and we join together and we fellowship as we seek to grow deeper in our faith and find out what it means to follow you in this world. God, fill our hearts with the empowerment of your Spirit. Give us boldness and courage. Help us to be more deeply devoted followers. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the benefits of being clergy is I have a lot of clergy friends. And that means I get to hear a lot of funny stories about what their kids say in church. I have stories I could add to that from things my kids have said in church. And uh, Renee was with them earlier. Renee, are you here? Yeah, Renee's here, getting them ready for an acolyte. And she's with them by herself in that room. And the whole time I'm thinking, oh God, what are they saying to her? What are they saying to her? Oh no. Well, I have a friend who's on staff at a very large church. He's an associate pastor there. He's uh, in charge of pastoral care. And um, uh, he and his wife were visiting another church on a Sunday on vacation. Uh, And they were sitting right behind this uh, family there in the pew. And this family had a few kids, and it came time for the offering. And uh, there was some music during the offering, and the ushers were going down and collecting the offering. It came to the family in front of my friend and his family. And the mom put money in the plate, and one of the kids piped up and said, you got to put in more. And she kind of looked at him and was a little bit sheepish and embarrassed. And uh, so she put a little bit more in and he said, that's not enough. (laughs) And so finally she kind of looked at him with this quizzical look. You know, if you're a parent, you know the look, right? The look that communicates, what are you doing? Without saying a word. I got that look down. So she gave him, I guess, the look. And he said, you know what daddy says every Sunday after church? This is the poorest preacher he's ever heard. (laughs) Oh, gosh. (laughs) Don't you love kids? The poorest preacher he's ever heard. 
So friends, we're going to take the next several weeks and we're going to talk about something called stewardship. How would you define stewardship? What does that, word, what does that biblical word mean to you? To care for. All right, Troy. Coming to Jesus, right? Okay. Watching over. Okay, Carol. Giving of yourself for God. All wonderful ways to define stewardship. Now, Hector and I didn't uh, plan this at all. But when he touched on Adam and Eve in the garden, he kind of got to the foundation of stewardship. So you read the creation story in Genesis chapter 1. And what happens? God goes through and God creates. And then God puts uh, Adam and Eve in the garden. And they have responsibility. Which is really another word for stewardship. They have a responsibility to care for, to love, to maintain, to see that what was entrusted to them flourishes. And that's really stewardship. And I think, friends, we can track, we can trace stewardship all through the Bible. It's there in Genesis, and it's there all the way to Revelation. There is an overarching narrative of stewardship in the Bible. We see this in the covenant that God makes with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. He calls Abraham out and says, go to a place I will show you. I will provide for you, and I will make of you and your heirs a great nation, and I will bring you to land that will be yours. And when God establishes that covenant with Abraham, here's something about a biblical covenant. There are responsibilities from both parties to fulfill the conditions of that covenant. So God calls Abraham. He gives him this promise. But in return for that, Abraham, and all the way through his descendants, through Isaac, and then through Jacob, and then through Joseph, and the the, the 12 tribes of Israel, all the way down through, there's a responsibility that the people, in order to receive the blessings of the covenant, and to be able to steward that, they have to be faithful. They have to be faithful. And we see over and over again in the Bible a pattern. God is always faithful. What do you think about the people of Israel? They're not so faithful. They see something shiny and they're like a dog with a squirrel. They run right after it. They make golden images while Moses is at the Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments. They see God's faithfulness, but again and again, they get distracted. They get caught up in their own needs. They take matters into their own hands, trusting in their own ability rather than God's faithfulness. And so we have the prophets like Malachi, who Melissa read from this morning, who call the people back to faithfulness and always warn them of the consequences of not being faithful. It's not that, excuse me, it's not that God intentionally visits bad things upon people. But God invites people into a relationship and makes them aware of the consequences of choosing to do something else versus being in relationship with Him. 
And so here in Malachi, the people have gone away again. They haven't been faithful. Corruption has worked its way into every part of their life, from their worship to the way they treat orphans and widows to uh, excessive taxes that they levy upon people. Everything has become corrupt. And God is indicting them, warning them of what's to come if they don't change and return to faithfulness. Stewardship. Being faithful to, stewarding, being responsible for what God has entrusted to a whole people group like Israel or to individual disciples like us. That theme runs through the whole of Scripture. In a lot of churches, they'll spend three or four weeks in the fall talking about stewardship and then never touch it again. Maybe for a year, maybe for five years, maybe for ten years. And then maybe they'll talk about stewardship again. Stewardship is as foundational as preaching and prayer and fellowship with each other, and uh, baptism and communion. I mean, can you imagine if only for four weeks of the year you prayed, and then you spent 48 other weeks not praying at all? What kind of a spiritual life would that be? It's the same with stewardship, friends. Stewardship at its core is nothing more than to the glory of God, being responsible for all with which we have been entrusted. And if that doesn't become a cornerstone to our spiritual life, just like all these other practices that I have named, then we're going to have a deficit. There'll be a problem in our spiritual life. We see that again and again with the people of Israel. And we see that moving into the New Testament. That as soon as people with whom God has entrusted them something, take their eyes off of that, see the problems around them, choose not to believe that the one who has shown himself to be faithful will be faithful to them, then they start to go astray. There are spiritual laws, spiritual physics, all through Scripture. We find that in stewardship. So to talk about stewardship over these next few weeks, we're, we're kind of not going to talk about stewardship. Because stewardship, friends, is built on a foundation of some other core spiritual principles. And I don't think if we, if we don't examine those, then we're not going to have a full grasp of what it means to be a good steward. So over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about things like scarcity, security, and service, all things related to part of a life of stewardship. And stick with us over these next four weeks, and we'll see how this all ties together. Melissa read for us this famous parable that Jesus gave, which you might know by the title, The Parable of the Talents. Has anybody heard that before? The Parable of the Talents. You know, I grew up hearing that parable preached, and here was, here was the sermon. Here's the parable of the talents. And three persons were given talents. And two of them chose to use those talents, one chose not to. And so what that means is God has given you talents. And you have to use them for God's service and to His glory. 
well, that's as good as far as it goes. But that's not actually what's happening here in the parable that Jesus teaches. A talent in the ancient world is just a coincidence of name. A talent in the ancient world was a unit of measurement. And a talent was something that weighed a significant amount. A talent very likely was 50 or 60 pounds for one talent. And you would weigh things like silver or gold in a talent. So when this man comes and gives one man five talents, that very likely is 250 pounds of gold. That's a lot of gold. Another man gets three talents, probably 150 pounds of gold. And another gets one or 50 pounds. Do you remember when we talked about parables over the summer? That there's something in parables that's ridiculous, kind of absurd. It it was a, a technique kind of to catch the audience's attention and to get them to to sort of stop and to straighten up and to wonder where this Jesus would be going with this story. Well, the fact that a man had 500 pounds of gold, whatever 250 plus 150 plus 50 is, I told you before I'm not good in math, that's a lot of gold. And his audience would have heard that and stopped. Oh my goodness. Nine talents. That's a lot. That's a lot. So the man goes away, he entrusts this to the servants, and we see in the scripture that two of them, two of them steward it well. And by that I mean they, 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 they take what is given, they exercise responsibility over it, they put it to use. They get a return on investing it. One of them takes it, <clears throat> and he doesn't lose anything. There's still one talent when the master comes back, but he hasn't done anything with it. And out of fear, he sat on it. He's refused to steward it. Does that sound familiar? Out of fear, out of uncertainty, he's taken what he's been given, but he hasn't done anything with it. Talent is a weight of measurement. In that time of the world, it was used for something incredibly weighty. Probably a talent was the largest single unit of weight measurement that the people had in that time. And when we come to these parables, when we come to Jesus' teachings, it's kind of important for us to step back for just a moment and to try to hear these stories as Jesus' original audience would have heard them. In the ancient world, when you were talking to good Jews, when you started talking about weight, weightiness, they would immediately have thought of one thing, the Shabbat Yahweh. That was the weight, literally in Hebrew translates the weight of God, the weightiness of God. And for Jews, where did that reside? On the mercy seat, on the Ark of the Covenant. And it was from the weightiness, the substance, the very being of God, that God's goodness was dispersed to the people. And then eventually, after the Ark of the Covenant was missing and they built the temple, it was in the inner sanctum of the temple 
that God's very presence dwelt. And they called it the Shabbat Yahweh, the weightiness of God. And for the people in that time, this weightiness, this substance of God was always connected to God's mercy. They understood that to be the most weighty, the most consequential, the most important thing there was, was God's divine mercy. And that everything flowed from that. And so I think, friends, it makes sense when we come to this parable and when we look at the context in which this parable is given. Because what follows immediately from this parable is this image of the final judgment And you know what basis upon which people are judged? How merciful they were. What does Jesus say when he calls them up? He said, Inasmuch as you have done it to the least of these, you've given them a cup of cold water. You've given the hungry food. You've visited those in prison. You've clothed those who are naked. The ones who have done it, you've done it to me. Those of you who have shown mercy... You've done it to me. And then Jesus reserves harsh judgment for those who didn't show mercy, for those who didn't do those things, didn't feed the hungry, give water to the thirsty, visit the prisoner and the sick, and clothe the naked. This parable is given in a context of mercy. And so I think it's reasonable to understand the parable in these terms. That much more than just the weightiness of gold, Jesus is trying to communicate something else. That each one of us, Jesus' disciples then, and those of us who were gathered here at St. Paul's this morning, each of us have been given a gift. A gift out of the divine mercy. And so we have a responsibility to invest that in the lives of people around us. To be merciful to be people that others look to us and they see in us someone who cares deeply for other people, who loves extravagantly, who shows incredible mercy and grace to those around us. Because that's what we have received from God. That is what the people believe to be the substance, the very weight of God was mercy. And so each one of us Receive a portion of that mercy. And so the question for us is, how are we going to invest that? In our own spiritual lives, what does it mean to be a person of mercy? Which gets us, I think, friends, to the most fundamental question that we could ask. What is your identity? What is your identity? See, friends, we can talk about stewardship all day and giving of our times, of giving of our our talent, our skills, and giving of our finances. And that's good and important. But if we don't tackle this question first, we might see some results in the short term. But long term, living as a disciple who takes stewardship seriously, as a core of who we are and of what it means to follow Jesus, as people who have received mercy and have been entrusted to be merciful, If we don't wrestle with this question, then we we might find that those other things don't sustain very long. What is your identity? 
For the people of Israel, their identity often was not in Yahweh, was not in the faithfulness of God. Often their identity was in their very selves. They would see life around them, circumstances, wandering in the wilderness, empires who were threatening to overtake them. And they'd get their eyes off of the faithfulness of the divine one, see their problems, and then attempt to deal with it on their own. Their identity was not in the faithfulness of God. And the question that's posed to us this morning, when we take that story and we take Matthew chapter 25, where we are confronted with being given God's divine mercy, the weightiness of that, the heaviness of that deep spiritual physics, that each one of us is entrusted with the very mercy of God, that should cause us to ask the question, what's my identity? Am I God's or am I mine? Am I owned by and controlled by the situations around me? The difficulties in life? The expectations of other people? Do I see a deficit in my time? Do I think I'm not good enough? Do I think I don't have enough money to be able to do what maybe we know God has called us to do? Or do we trust in the faithfulness of God? Those are questions of identity, whose we are, who we are at our very core. Because when we grapple with our identity, who we are and whose we are, then we start to understand the things that we've been given. They're not ours. It's all a gift of the divine mercy. And when we start to approach life that way, when I start to realize that, you know what, I'm not my own. I'm not my own. Through the mercy of God, I've been brought into a kingdom that is others-focused, that's concerned with others, with those around us who are lost, helpless, wandering in the dark. Then we start to realize that we're given a gift, and we're not our own. We're God's, and we're given that gift for a purpose to bring the mercy of God into a world that so desperately needs it. And then everything we are and all that we have lines up for that purpose. Friends, this morning we think of the Israelites and their lack of faithfulness. We think of the fact that each one of us, just like the Israelites, all of us here this morning have been given something of the weightiness of God. We've been given talents. We've received God's divine mercy. So now what? What are we together going to do with it? Do we understand who we are and whose we are? We're not our own. We've been bought with a price. And so in that reality, let's be people who show God's divine mercy in all that we are, all that we have, and all that we do. Amen.